Welcome to the Living It Up podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Living It Up podcast. This is a Thursday edition coming to you just days after the temporary restraining order of Live versus the PGA Tour was denied. Legal round one is over. The PGA Tour has scored the first points. This is Brian. I am joined by my co-host, George. George, you're a lawyer. Let's be honest. Has this been one of the most thrilling set of days for you? Your Venn diagrams of love of the law and love of golf are just completely overlapping. Uh, yeah, actually, I can say that when the when the hearing was going on, I was stuck on a another Zoom, and so I'm trying to like follow along with some of the stuff on Twitter while still paying attention to a call, and uh, really a roller coaster of emotions, wanting to just be like, hey, I gotta like. I got to resume this call later so I could get in. But uh, I guess the Zoom into the hearing was capped at 500 people. So I wouldn't have been able to get into that anyway to watch it. Um, but yeah, from, from everything I heard, which is a little disappointing, like, uh, a little inside baseball when like you, you do have two titans of, of litigation going there. Um, Kecker Van Est is an absolute shit kicker of a law firm. Um, and Quinn Emanuel, same same thing, uh, just true, absolute behemoths. And from what I heard, just obviously from the, the recaps, is that one was far more prepared than the other. Um, and yeah, that, that was the that was that was the tenor that I got. I uh, surprisingly enough was one of the five hundred that was able to click. Uh, I was clicking on the live stream link in Zoom a bunch of times. Eventually, got through. I missed. All of the arguments by the live lawyer, who, as you said, apparently was uh, either underprepared or just, you know, had, had a lack of understanding of the golf ecosystem to a degree. I was able to catch the last portion of the PGA Tours response, and then I and then I was able to catch the, the decision coming down. I, I'll, I'll, I'll push it back to you because you mentioned the, uh, the legal teams. Was this Yankees-Braves uh, legal teams, or what are we talking, Yankees-Red Sox? It, it sounded like it was like... Yankees versus who's terrible the Tigers I mean it, it on paper it literally was Yankees Red Sox like it was the the real deal um but yeah I'm reminded of when I when I clerked for a, a judge in law school and at the end of my term the judge took us to lunch and you know the question was hey you know can you guys spot a good lawyer and and the truth of the matter is like you don't really notice good lawyers as much as bad ones really jump out at like, oh my God, this is, this is like bad. Um, and, and everything I was seeing from the people who watched it and talked to a couple people who watched it is like, it was really bad. I mean, the Quinn, the Quinn team was just not there. Hearing some of the arguments that came out, um, they just, they, they didn't really seem to understand all of it in golf and have a real understanding of, of how it all sort of fits together. Um, which, yeah, which so, is hard, so, which, Well, I was going to say this, George, back us up for our listeners that may not be as legally inclined as you. There was two parts to this case. The first part is this temporary restraining order. Three guys, Hudson Swafford, Taylor Gooch, Matt Jones, seeking temporary relief to immediately be able to play this week. That's what was decided upon. And I, I think it'd be good, like walk us through what are the elements that it really would have taken to get that TRO. The second half, as I should say, is, is going to be a longer, you know, multi-year potentially 
antitrust, anti-competitive suit. But for the TRO, you know, back us up, like what needed to be there? What what was not there? What would you have done if it had been you uh, on on the bench? So the the reality is that you need, there's a couple of prongs here. You need irreparable harm so that we can't, we can't say, let's get the lawsuit over. And if the plaintiffs win, you know, they'll get made whole. And, and that was where the PGA tour did a, a really good job. And it is to the point that, Hey, this, this is just really about money. They, they framed it about money, which they've done about live the whole time. Like guys, this is just money. This is just money. And the live expert and the live team just couldn't get the judge and get the conversation off the money. And mm -hmm. unfortunately for live, their expert, I think was the most useful witness for the PGA. The other, the, the other side. Yeah. The other side. Right. Cause they basically came and said, Hey, these guys negotiated in their contracts that they could miss out on these things. And that's why there's some of their upfront money or however the contract was structured took into account the risk of them not participating, which effectively shows there is a way, like it's not irreparable because we've actually already put a dollar value on it. And the judge clearly in reading her order just latched onto that as like, oh, all we're talking about is dollars. And where the, the live team really needed to point out, no, no, no. The dollars don't matter. Anyone can make dollars. The, what matters is access and access mm -hmm. to the majors next year. And this is how the majors are set up. And this is a closed loop system right now. And they're all in collusion. They've all been working to prevent a competitor to the PGA Tour. And these guys, it's particular Gooch, um, you know, the guys that were sitting in the 60s for, for the FedEx points, hard to say if, if they qualify and get into the top 50 um, or 75, whatever the criteria were. To, I think it's top 30 gets you into the majors for the following yeah, year. Yeah, top 30 gets you into the tour championship and the tour championship field are, are locked into the majors for next year. Then of course there's OWGR top fifties at certain points in time during the year qualify for majors. But if you make the FedEx or sorry, the tour championship, you are in the next four years majors. Right. So that, that is really, I mean, Gooch, so Gooch had an argument of like, look, this isn't about money for me. I don't care about the money. I currently am qualified to play in these majors based on where I sit now. If mm -hmm. I'm not allowed to play to at least qualify for the tour championship, mm -hmm. I lose this. And access to majors is like a very important and specific thing um, for a number of reasons. And they just never did a good job of explaining that. They talked about, oh, advertisers and my, you know, some status and things like this, but they, they could never clearly articulate that's the real harm. Yeah, I'm with you. I heard a bunch of that, too, where they were basically saying it's sponsorships. And if you get to the majors, then you may have more sponsorships. And it kept going back to a, a money thing. And to your point, it's like if all we're going to sit here and talk about is monetary damages alone, then it's going to be an uphill climb to, to claim irreparable harm. Because I can always just decide the lawsuit later down the line and award yep. somebody money this way or that way. I, I think there could have been a much more vigorous uh, you know, stance to your point, like, 
hey, if, if you are essentially like on the outs of how to qualify for majors, because this is one of, if not the only path, it's essentially the only path. You can, you can do open qualifying for two of them, but that's, that's a huge uphill climb. And I do think guys like Gooch, he was sitting 20th, even with you know, having dropped the last two months, not playing in PGA Tour events, he still sits at 20th right now. So he just has to kind of credibly show up to the first two playoff events, and, and he's going to the Tour Championship for all intents and purposes. This episode is sponsored by the Fit for Golf app, the all-in-one guide to better golf, fitness, and health. I've been using the Fit for Golf app for many months. You know, it's improved my overall strength, flexibility, and my ability to prepare the right way before I play. In fact, I find that if I'm coming in hot for a tee time, I don't just bang balls, you know, for 10 minutes like I used to. Instead, I have a set of band and club-aided dynamic stretches that I do, and then I just hit a handful of balls and putts, and I'm ready to rock. In the Fit for Golf app, you'll find a ton of workouts and programs from speed training to off-season and in-season workouts warm-up routines, and much, much more. And Living It Up listeners, we have a special deal for you. Use the code LIVINGITUP, all one word, in checkout, and you'll get 20% off an annual membership. We thank Fit for Golf for their sponsorship, and I thank Fit for Golf for the improvements I'm seeing in my own game. Yeah, and I mean, it really is like, in Taylor's an interesting case, because if, you, if you're here or believe some of the stuff you've read, like he really thought that he could play in London and maybe get like yelled at or whatever, and then come back and just finish out the season. And so, and, and you feel for him because again, this, this all comes back to the, stri- the strategy of these announcements and everything else. Um, why he, why he was in the initial path makes no sense considering the year he's having. And, and I look at this from like a live management standpoint. If, if I'm managing live and I've got like Taylor Gooch, who's like, yeah, man, I'll come, but I haven't really locked up majors, you know, really any meaningful exemptions. So let's. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, until... let's get me, let's get me through the FedEx cup and then I'm your guy. Exactly. Like, let me get through to the top 30. I'm sitting in a good position. You know, I lock that up. I then I jump. So the, for the next year and the you know the forty eight that are going, you live have one more person who, as of the moment, is technically qualified to appear in all four majors. No, now, I'm totally with you. He was the big head scratcher. We talked about this in the pod early on. In the first wave of players announced, it was a lot of these you know uh, European guys that were in the twilight of their career. Not a huge surprise because they had been rumored. DJ was a huge name, but again, had been rumored and, and is the type of guy that is sort of, you know, qualified for majors based on a recent master's victory. So he's good to go. But Gooch was that head scratcher. And so it, it's interesting that he's now become, you know, for all intents and purposes, the face of this. Obviously, the TRO was denied. The, the antitrust case will continue for many, many months, if not years. Uh, but, but he was a, an interesting cat in terms of you know, one might argue, and, and then this has been widely rumored, that he literally read very, very strictly into the only North American competing events clause and said, hey, man, I'm going to play in London. I'll just, like, play this one event and I'll come back. Uh, one, one might argue, like, he, he wasn't thinking straight or he got some bad advice from Greg or others or his agent. 
but it, it was a head scratcher to say the least. Yeah, it, it definitely was. And I, I, I actually feel bad for him um, because then, you know, obviously with this lawsuit, he's kind of the face of it. And they, it, if you read the judge's order and the way they've looked at this, it, it wasn't really even a close call. And so, you know, you've heard a lot of the tour guys saying, you're not suing the tour, you're suing us and, and this rhetoric there. And poor Taylor Gooch is now probably public enemy number one. Yeah, yeah. And, and just the, you know, I, I don't know how he can walk back in. And let's just say in 18 months time, there is some peace reached between the two. I don't know how this guy can walk back into these locker rooms and just not feel ridiculous. And some of these guys, it's head scratching to me, these PGA tour guys that are just being such like company men at the end of the day, man, like all of them just need to chill the fuck out. It's really, really annoying. Like Billy Horschel, man, like it's okay. These guys just remind me of, you know, it's, it's like, the the wait staff at Bennigan's is super pissed that like half the, someone like, someone went to Outback somebody went to yeah. Outback and now they're just yeah, yeah. Like, anathema yeah like a Dave and Buster's and you know a bunch of dudes went to Dave and Buster's like you guys are all doing nothing but playing exhibition golf for money right like the Valero Open that's exhibition golf the Wyndham that's an exhibition for money. I know that there are things, and the only reason there is these other things is the the tour has built in these caveats, and you know, one would argue, considering the majors are not owned by the PGA Tour in any way, shape, or form, has formed these alliances that elevate these tournaments to provide access into these majors. This is where I think the bigger lawsuit down the road. Comes. I'm and, totally with you because the, the TRO is, is, you know, over and done, but this additional sort of antitrust suit still remains. Um, and I go back to, to what you said. It's sort of like, yes, these are exhibitions, comma, but they carry with them points and, and this system, you know, I look at it from a business sense. What you do in, in business is you create competitive moats that make it hard for folks to compete with you. Now you do that within the bounds of antitrust law and you can't manipulate and, and, abuse that market power. But the PGA Tour, one could argue, has created a number of mechanisms that you'd call moats that essentially make it the, the big bad tour on the block and make it very, very hard, if not almost impossible, that I think Liv has proven, almost impossible for a competitor to emerge. I, I've said this to you, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts. I actually think the better uh, plaintiff for an anti-competitive suit is probably the, the PGL, the Premier Golf League, this thing tried for many, many years to get off the ground and the moats that the PGA tour had created were just too much for them to breach. Like they were not able to compete with the PGA tour under, under the current sort of ecosystem of golf. Yeah. But even lives can be able to show it or the players will as well. If, if this, this world golf ranking thing comes down and says, no, you don't get to, to do it because it, and, and I think a judge, and I mean, I thought there was a pretty clear argument you could have made for these players that didn't get made. So I'm, I'm not going to just assume people are going to get it right. But this one, 
the the official world golf ranking is is a math equation. That's it. There's no eyeball test. There's no anything else. It's a math equation. And you can't, with a straight face, say, oh, well, there's no way we could ever figure out how this would work in this arrangement because of the way they're, they're, they're not playing real golf by using a shotgun start. Like, yeah, a hundred percent. I've said this for, for a while. I played college golf. You can stack rank college golfers that play in a variety of tournaments across the just by doing a mathematical head to head on how they fared against golfers when they had the opportunity to compete against one another. So there, there's no like, you know, major, uh, you know, math that can't be done to say, Hey, we're going to not award any points to anyone that finished tied 25th or lower at a live event, right? That's, that's easy math to do. And if the OWGR wanted to bring them in quicker, you know, as they've shown with, with other tours sooner rather than later, they could make that happen. Totally. And, and they could do it instantly. And there, the argument for live is to guys, you can definitely do it instantly because our players are a known quantity. They, yeah, they this, is, this isn't the Tar, Heel, the Tar Heel tour of, of North Carolina development tour where who knows who's showing up. These are guys that have a, a demonstrated record against everyone else in the OWGR. Correct. And they can just say, this is how it gets applied. And it could be, you get three quarter points for an event because it's only three rounds, not four rounds. You can say, hey, we will do it, but you, in order to effectively have a cut, even though it's a no cut event, you have to finish in the top 24 in order to receive points for this event. And those are simple tweaks. And again, we're talking about a math equation. Anyone who spent, you know, three weeks in cube hell working through Excel spreadsheets knows you can pretty much make it do anything you want it to do. And for them to sit there sanctimoniously harumphing saying, this is a hit and giggle, this isn't real, is, is, is just full of shit. And it, it really undermines their, their argument. And, um, and which actually, one of the things that I saw it kind of get dispelled, and it is, it's one of the great things that I think needs to be asked. And these live contracts are maybe the most simultaneously, the most secretive and worst kept secrets in all of golf. Mm -hmm. Um, and they almost slipped up a few times during the, during the, the trial yesterday. Uh, the, the judge obviously knew the plaintiff and the defendants obviously knew the amounts they were in discovery and they hinted at them and they almost got to the edge and then they did not disclose it. They were like, as you can see in appendix, whatever it, it was, it was humorous. You, you may, you may enjoy that as a lawyer, but it was, it, it almost got slipped. Yeah. And the thing is, is in one of the big things that people latched onto, and then I forget who someone, a bunch of people kind of tried desperately to walk it back is the notion that the winnings are credited against the bonuses, the signing mm -hmm. amounts or whatever. <clears throat> and this, this kind of came out at one point earlier and Liv's attorney that's sitting in the room immediately jumped on it and was like, no, no, no. Prize money is completely and always separate from the other stuff. And, and they, it came out again in the hearing and what they tried, what they, the way they walked it back this time was to say that, I guess it sounds like 
the part of these signing bonuses and everything else were to basically indemnify the the players in the event that they were kept out of majors or couldn't do the FedEx cups. And if they were to play in the majors, they effectively, or could get the FedEx cup, then either they give the money back to live or live doesn't have to pay that money to them because they were able to get it. And that's, it's, it's convoluted, but it, that's effectively live was like, Hey, we've got you covered, but if you get in and make that money, that's, that's 60,000 or 500,000, whatever it would be less than we owe you. We, we get to do that off the top of what we've agreed to pay you because we did it to protect you against losing it. And, and that was, I think another nail in the coffin and it's interesting. And it's like, we really need one of these contracts to leak and mm-hmm. what's insane in this world of everything leaks yeah and everything leaks that one of these hasn't so i have to imagine that there is some insane there has to be some batshit language in there for these not to have leaked yeah i, I agree i tend to believe though that there's there's wiggle room in what everybody's saying and the answer is probably somewhere in the middle and depends on your contract, right? I have to imagine that some of the guys, the top guys, whether that's Dustin Johnson or Bryson or Phil Mickelson, they have equity stakes in being the captain and they're going to get like sort of franchise guarantees in that. And so one could argue their multi-year contract looks different than Pat Perez's, looks different than Taylor Gooch's. What Liv has said is that, you know, purses are in addition to any guaranteed amount. There's no draw against that, blah, blah, blah. They've made that clear twice. That said, I think there's the devil's always in the details, as you know, and I guarantee uh, there's probably like four or five different flavors of contracts with the guys that have signed thus far. Yeah, and I mean that, that's the deal. Like I, I now just want to see these things because I, I yeah. got a couple other things that came out that if they did play in tour events, they like if they play in any other events that aren't live events, they they are required to wear some live branding just kind of bonkers um yeah oh you and... saw this with some of the guys like pat patrick reed wore at the open championship like live on i think like his hat sleeve you know collar like everywhere he could fit it <laughs> well i think that has probably more <laughs> to do with a lack of any sponsors <laughs> yes and and uh, he seems strikes me as the kind of guy that's never turned down free merch so i think there's probably a more of a coherent reason why he's doing that i, I had one go back to the judge you'd mentioned the judge a few times i I, I had two questions that you could help me as a lawyer. One was that there were certain like smirks or head nods that the judge made that seemed very clear to me that she was going to side with the PGA tour, even during the question and answer part of the proceedings. I, I was informed by another lawyer that we golf with that this is not atypical, that they like, it's a little bit performative. Uh, they already know where they're going to rule. They ask these questions to get them on the record. Um, and so like just head nodding is not like indicative that she's partisan or biased in any way. It's more just like she knew where she was leaning. And the second part of that question is this. She also didn't seem like super golf articulate. And I wonder, I'll use like a tech analogy. Is that a feature or a bug? Meaning like, do we need her to be up to speed? Do we need any judge, uh, male or female, to be like a golf fan or up to speed on the, on the business of golf? Or do they just need to know the law? when it comes to this stuff 
Well, so first things first, the, when the judge takes the bench, 99 times out of 100, they, they know where their ruling is heavily leaning. Um, most, a lot of courts will actually issue tentative rulings the day before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so basically, if the tentative comes out in your favor, you know, we always joke that, you know, you just show up and you do your best not to um, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory when mm-hmm. you've won. And, and I mean, I can say for it, I've walked in on cases where the tentative ruling has been extraordinarily favorable. I was the moving party. The judge would say, well, you're the moving party. You can start. And you just say, um, I have, I'm, I'm content with where we're at unless the court has specific questions uh, for me. I will reserve my time um, to respond to the, you know, opposition's arguments and don't talk. <laughs> Just yeah, don't. Yeah. 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 No, no uh, sense in, in, in doing uh, harm when there's no harm to be done. Yeah. And, that, and from what I could tell that that sounded very much like the PGA was like, no, we're good. And then the, the live attorney just started talking and talking and talking. And, you know, the other kind of idiom that goes within litigation is if you're talking, you're losing. Um, Cause you are, you are trying to do anything you can to back that judge off. And, you know, there's not a whole lot you can do. Her manners of smirking and everything else is more likely sort of an affirmation that she's hearing what she needs to, that supports where she wants to go. Yeah. You're like, okay. All right. Yeah. That's what I thought. That's kind of where I'm at. And, and it's not like a, like an inside, like, don't worry, Doug, I got you. We're good. You're, you're saying all the right things. It's more like, it's, it's her being like, yeah, I thought this through and this is going exactly kind of the way I had assumed it would go. Um, mm-hmm. So that was that piece. And then the second piece as to whether or not they need to be knowledgeable, it really comes down to the fact that that's the attorney's jobs. Um, that's what the briefs are for. You, your, your opportunity to brief a judge is effectively the only time you ever get to speak to them one-on-one. And obviously you're not talking to them, but you are, they are just reading your argument and your theory. And so that's your moment to educate them with how you want them to see the world. And, and judges hear cases, you know, in the Northern district of California, that judge today is probably hearing you know, a wildly complex patent infringement case. Um, you know, there isn't like a sports law department at, in the, yeah, in the district I guess, court. I guess that's what I was kind of coming to grips with as well, is that like, they see these sports related things only every blue in a, once in a blue moon, they're probably much deeper on, you know, intellectual property law and some other places within the law, but they need to know the salient points that make this analogous to, to any other, uh, you know, sort of TRO or, you know, employee, uh, employer relationship. Correct. And, and the, the, you know, a judge was a practicing attorney at some point and, and most attorneys specialize in something. So you may have a judge that took the, that got to the bench coming through employment law or mm-hmm. coming through patents or something else that they're an expert in that is wildly different than what they're hearing. And so that comes back to, again, where I think the, the council for live, wasted or did not maximize its opportunity to educate the judge with the the universe as they wanted it to be seen 
Um, mm -hmm. And that's, that's really unfortunate because you, the, the hurdle now for them, even though this was just one very narrow and it very narrow little piece of the case is that's true, but sort of the overall narrative is framed and it's just about money. That's all this mm -hmm. judge is handling. Hey, yeah, you had to have a huge startup cost to get in, but you know, you, you're in startups. I work with startup companies. Every startup has a huge, you know, hill to climb depending on what they're, what they're trying to do. And, you know, the, the money is your budget, may be 30% engineering and 70%, you know, customer acquisition. Um, and you just got to go and yeah. that acquisition. Yeah, is and in that way, it's not it's not anti-competitive to have high barriers to entry for someone to compete with you. It would be anti-competitive, and this is sort of we've touched on this, and this is for the broader suit. If some of the things in the complaint end up holding to be true, right? There's there's things in the live complaint that talk about strong arming suppliers and media partners and vendors and sponsors. I look at those things and think, gosh, that that screams abuse of market power. If you are the de facto monopoly for elite professional golf. And all of a sudden you're telling everyone that surrounds that ecosystem that if you touch this competitor, you are, you are dead to us. Yeah. And, and that will, that's going to be where the discovery gets, you know, interesting. Um, and, and that's where live is going to have to just really hustle and work really hard to get the judge to come around to see the, the bigger picture here, because, you know, a lot of what, they put in their complaint, I don't think is technically anti-competitive. The fact that Jay is copying them, Jay is adding these, you know, upping these price, uh, these purses and everything else. Yeah, you know, that, that's just doing everything you can to shore up your business. Uh, mm -hmm. So that, that's not anti-competitive. The, the stuff that was very specific, um, and I made some notes of the complaint where I think you got, you really have some issues here is, um, where was it here? We got you need one the, of your associates the, to be the, shuffling yeah, the papers over to so you. Par it's paragraph one oh eight that that Liv said they had secured broadcast companies, sponsors, and advertisers. And that because of the PGA, those companies said they couldn't participate. And I mean broadcast companies is very much, you know, four or five names, mm -hmm. whether it's Sky Sports, whether it's NBC Sports, CBS, ESPN. I mean, there's not a whole lot of, of players in the golf universe that even would do it. I, I don't even know that Fox is in there because Fox sold out the U.S. Open for pennies on the dollar. Um, so it, it'll be really interesting. And there's not a whole lot of names to go figure out in some of this stuff all right, hey, what, how far along were you? And I mean, for, for Liv's sake, you hope that if they're putting that in there, they have, they got they receipts. Have the receipts. Yeah. yeah. And, and that if I they think do, will be the most that's where Jay thing. has a problem. I'm with you. I think that'll be the most interesting part. Interesting in like a, uh, uh, almost like a morbidly interesting way. You know, there's going to be maybe many, many quarters, if not years of like discovery and depositions and if Liv follows their current playbook, which is like stay in the news with, you know, news coming out every week or every other week, I wouldn't be surprised if we see leaks of those, you know, discovery and depositions that just trickle out over time 
over the next few years. And, and again, they're trying to, to sway public perception and, and sway, uh, you know, the judges and people that read this stuff to, to start to think in the, in the court of public perception who, who the big bad guy is uh, in this case. Yeah, and, and one of the things I think is kind of really interesting is like Jay's locked up these media contracts now for like seven years or whatever. If if I'm him and I swear up and down left and right, I have the better product. That my tour is better. My everything about what I'm doing is better than what Liv is doing. And the fact that you know the big the big guys will say the top twenty, you know they can make life altering money through sponsorships and everything else at that level. The, the grind of, oh, you have to pay for your airfare, your travel, all these things doesn't, it's it, sure it's an expense and absolutely it's a thing, but it's not going to hit those guys nearly the way it hits whoever is 135 on the FedEx list who's shown up to Wyndham thinking like, oh God, I have got to hit, I've got to win or I'm on the corn ferry next year. Um, and, and so for him, I'd be like, all right, fuck it. I'm going to, I want these live guys here, live. I will let you guys play, you know, six events a year where I will, we will open our doors to you. And I mean, make it the John Deere, make it Valero, whatever. And show and be like, and then if these live guys show up and don't make cuts and don't, you know, don't make top tens, then you can totally guffaw and be like, see, I told you this league was no good. I told yeah, you this. And, and, and maybe this is a, an opportunity to, to start to wrap up and end on this point, which is you start to see, because um, let's pivot to rumors and like, who are the next guys? Cam Smith, obviously heavily rumored. There's, there's, you know, dollar figures thrown around 100, 120 million. He gives a very uh, non-answer kind of answer, right? If, you, if you're, if you're going to say, hey, mate, uh, it's going to come from my team. You're basically saying, yeah, man, I'm not going to tell you yet, but I'm, I'm going. Um, so that sounds like a, a, a terrible secret that everybody knows about. But then you hear about other Aussies, uh, Mark Leishman, Adam Scott, uh, even names like Cam Young was, were thrown around, but then quickly uh, it seems maybe squashed. And, and it makes me curious, like, and this is where I'm going with this point, like, why does it have to be one or the other? And I'm seeing this from golf fans. You know, when, when the rumor turns to Hideki, people will be like, yeah, but he's kind of old and washed up. And I have to remind them, like, yo, he's 30 and just won the Masters. Like, they'll talk about Cam Young and they'll be like, oh, he's got some promise, but he's never proven anything. Like, yo, this guy is like top 10 FedEx Cup. He's like number 19 in the world. Like, it, it's a funny proposition where everybody is like entrenched into their camps. And then it's got to be binary. It's got to be I'm like pro live or pro PGA Tour, right? I, I'll say it like we're not dick riders for live. I, I'm pro disruption. I'm pro competition. I'm pro like the reality of like, yo man, this can be a better product. And, and the PGL might, have might, or could have been involved there. Live happens to be the one that's doing the disrupting, but it, but it strikes me as such a funny time in golf fandom that everything is so binary right now. Yeah. And I've seen the same thing and it, it literally makes zero sense and the players are just as bad as the fans and yeah the you know which i've said it before in my opinion the top 100 players in the world totally screwed this whole thing up by not getting together you know as soon as phil and bryson were bragging about the contracts and i think everybody knows that they basically had this thing locked up you know back into 
mid 2020 or whenever they all flew out to the Saudi international and it was, it was effectively done. Why they didn't get together as the hundred players, just say, all right, we're the top hundred players in the world. How are we going to leverage this? How are, what do we want this to look like? Because if we leave this to the tours management to, to battle it out, it's going to be disastrous. What do we want? I, I and, agree. I think there. I think there were two moments in time. There was the chatter in the in the winter time, like sort of the lead up to when the Shipnuck piece, uh, the interview with Phil leaked, where I think they could have rallied and said, like, "What do we do?" Then there was almost this reprieve. There was this like extra two months. They could have entertained the the Premier Golf League, the PGL offer, which was very player friendly and wanted to be, you know, cooperative with the PGA Tour as best it could. And I, I agree with the, I think the point you're making, which is like the players squandered a few opportunities for them to really have the upper hand and to, to end mass sort of think about their product differently. Completely. And, and they could have used their leverage to basically say, all right, Jay, we want to be able to do this, but we also want to be able to come play Riviera and, yeah. you know, do the FedEx cup. And, and the other stuff here. And they could have gone to Greg and been like, all right, Greg, we'll do this, but we're not doing some dopey bullshit. We're not going to do, you know, this other stuff. And we want to be able to come do this. So if we, yeah, and there's, and there's, um, no, I'm with you. There's many flavors that that could have taken. And that was like an inflection point, a moment in time we'll never have back. But I, I continue to think when Phil's, you know, bitching about media rights, others are talking about, you know, the, the onerous sort of PGA tour member agreement, there was an opportunity for the players to get together and say, Hey man, I know we signed for the whole year. It turns out we're actually going to sign this next agreement for 26 weeks. Those are the 26 weeks you're going to get where we are loyal to the PGA tour. And outside of that, I want my media rights and I want the opportunity to go play elsewhere. And, and they had all the leverage in the world to go do that. And they squandered it. Yeah. I mean, and again, this kind of gets into without knowing all the, the inner workings and how Jay markets all this stuff out. Because that was one of the arguments that I also believed got completely they, – they really didn't go for, and I thought it was a really good one, is that the, the tour and all this independent contractor stuff and everything else, like, it really isn't because of this media rights lockup and this other stuff. By putting, I think, 40, 44 weeks of events on, the, that leaves two weeks – I mean, there's, then there's four majors – so that's call it 48 weeks. So that basically leaves four weeks a year where there's zero golf. Yep. And when you do that and you say, you can't go, you can't do anything on a week when we're hosting an event, you've, you've effectively put a lasso around these guys when it's, you say it's a minimum of 15 events, you know, the big guys are never showing to these lesser events unless you know, it, it happens to be in their home state or something. So it's a kind of a can easy lift for them to get to. Um, and they're like, well, screw it. I don't want to get super behind the FedEx comp FedEx points. So yeah, I will swing in and play this sort of like dinky pre tier two, tier three event. Yeah. Just to, just so that I'm not showing up in January, 750 points behind, you know, Bronson Burgoon or whoever, um, and, and go from there. So, they, they squandered it. They, the, I'm with you on the just seeing better, more golf. The, the PGA new contract just kicks in. It's like seven or eight years, whatever it is. 
And guess what that means? It means there's more money, which means there's going to be more advertising, which means all the things that we hate about the TV and the production value of a tour event is going to get fucking worse. It's I'm with you. And that's why I, I, I keep going back to like, I'm pro seeing great competitive golf and seeing a cool TV product. I, I have low hopes that the PGA tour with their new deal is going to be innovative and show me, you know, more golf. They're going to be more playing through opportunities if, if that, and, and I think George, we could wrap it at, you know, what's coming next. Like what, what you, you think, the legal sort of like what's the next legal maneuver is it just to continue down this path of of the antitrust suit are there other things that uh you know an ace up the sleeve of of live golf here that they might try to pull well i mean obviously we touched on it if the australians jump um and if hideki jumps there's been talk about the latin american players probably going you know the south africans have already gone the the next real domino that is going to be potentially you know, must miss TV, this could absolutely gut the President's Cup. Oh, like, yeah, and, and the rumor is Cam Smith may may just say, like, yeah, I, I'm going to wait for the FedEx Cup, but I'm not waiting for the for the President's Cup. And he would bolt before that, which is uh, – he's the number one guy on the list. He That effectively neuters the FedEx Cup. The, 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 the international team would literally have almost nobody. And, I mean, it's been very quiet, but I have to – I have to believe that the live guys are doing, making some kind of push with this team concept to try and get a South Korean team. Yeah. And, and the, you know, so and there, and there, there you've got, you list. know, Sun, Sun Yam, Tom Kim, recent winner, Cage Lee, right. You've, you've got some really strong names there. Let me go down since we mentioned it. Team standings as of today, Cam Smith, Hideki Matsuyama, Sun Yam, Yako Neiman, and a guy that's been sort of rumored. Tom Kim jumps nine places to number five. Corey Connors, Mita Pereira, Adam Scott. So in your top eight, you've got three guys that are essentially going and maybe one, one, maybe even two in that, in that list that might consider going as well right after the FedEx Cup. Yeah. And I mean, and I mean, Neiman would be huge. The dude is super talented. Uh, Mito Pereira is ascending, whether he peaked out at the PGA, who knows, but, you know, Adam Scott's just a box office draw. I think he's been very neutral in this whole thing. And I think if he has an opportunity to to do more with Australian golf and if there's three events that are going to be there, I, I think he looks really hard and says, you know what, I he's probably not – He I'm sure he could go without having to play Valero and all these other – Yeah, sort of, yeah one-off tour so in Zurich, even though he's on the PGA tour. So he <laughs> clearly is a guy that if you put him where, you know, I don't know how many of the events are going to be in the United States the next four, next year for the 14, but if, if he's looking at a schedule that really is more international, more broken up, more time at home, plus, you know, a swing through Australia in, in some pretty like high production golf, and particularly if Cam Smith's involved, then, I mean, I think he jumps. And this, this international team, I, really what happens is I think the, the international, the Predators could die. I mean, it was, it was a fictional thing made up in 1994, I think really to placate Greg Norman um, because there were all these quality internationals, well, and Ernie Els, you know, you had all these quality internationals who weren't taking part in the Ryder Cup and 
how do we get a bunch of money into the PGA Tour? Oh, the the the, ir- the irony that Norman may help create it and kill it. Well, well, let's leave it at that, George. This has been a fun conversation, and I, I'm glad to have a a lawyer. Given that uh, we're going to talk a lot of legal stuff, I imagine in the in the coming months and years. Yeah, I will say this: this will be the interesting thing to watch based on the way the judge ended the order. I think the PGA Tour is going to file a motion to dismiss this entire thing, and that will be very, very interesting to see how that one is done because the judge indicated that she was not impressed with the the claim under Article One of the Sherman Act, and maybe there was something under Article Two, but if if she knocks out, if they can knock out one of the major components of this i think this thing takes on a much different complexion and the other thing we're going to see here probably before too long just because they got named in this thing is i don't think augusta national is going to remain quiet for much longer yeah i tend to think they'll wait as long as they can they'll let the ojbgr uh, sort of application be heard and responded to but I, i agree they you know, they got to send out invites in December time frame. So uh, we'll hear from them sooner rather than later. But, hey, George, this was a fun one. We will, uh, we're will we going to deep dive, it sounds like, into the Sherman Act soon enough. And uh, we've also got an interview coming up uh, in the meantime. But we'll watch the FedEx Cup, see how these guys all fare, and see who jumps and when. But, uh, George, good chatting, buddy. All right. Take care. This episode is sponsored by the Fit for Golf app, the all-in-one guide to better golf, fitness, and health. I've been using the Fit for Golf app for many months. You know, it's improved my overall strength, flexibility, and my ability to prepare the right way before I play. In fact, I find that if I'm coming in hot for a tee time, I don't just bang balls, you know, for 10 minutes like I used to. Instead, I have a set of band and club-aided dynamic stretches that I do, and then I just hit a handful of balls and putts, and I'm ready to rock. In the Fit for Golf app, you'll find a ton of workouts and programs from speed training to off-season and in-season workouts, warm-up routines, and much, much more. And Living It Up listeners, we have a special deal for you. Use the code LIVINGITUP, all one word, in checkout, and you'll get 20% off an annual membership. We thank Fit for Golf for their sponsorship, and I thank Fit for Golf for the improvements I'm seeing in my own game. Thanks for listening to the Living It Up podcast. Follow us on the Twitters at Living It Up Pod. See you there.